Please open your Bibles to John chapter 12. We're going to read two passages today, Palm Sunday text, John chapter 12 along with Revelation 7. Hear God's word, John 12, beginning of verse 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called to Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. And then Revelation 7, 9, 7, 9, John's vision, the apostle John's vision, same author, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb." And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. What a text. Grass withers and flowers fade, and this good word, it endures forever. Thanks be to God. So we begin Holy Week today. We meditate on the most important week in the history of the world. And this week is even more important than creation week. That week that starts, and God said, let there be light, and there was light Jesus entering Jerusalem this Sunday of Holy Week is even more phenomenal, really, than that. God's goal at creation is to redeem a people for himself. Now that goal is reaching its climactic point when it's actually going to be accomplished. And so light himself, as John 8 says, Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. Light himself is entering Jerusalem to dispel the darkness of your sin and my sin and your judgment and my judgment. So John 12, one through seven, what introduces the triumphal entry passage says that toward evening on Friday, 
So right at the start of Saturday, which is their Sabbath, so it went from Friday evening to Saturday evening, Jesus and his disciples arrived to Bethany, which is about two miles from Jerusalem, and they arrived to the home of his good friend. His good friend was Lazarus. And just a short while ago, Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead after he had been dead and buried four days. He had raised him from the dead. And so recall that Lazarus' sisters are Martha and Mary. And so he goes to their home, right, at the beginning of Holy Week. He's going really to refresh himself with his friend's company and fellowship with them, which is a really sweet touch that he needed their fellowship prior to what he's getting into. And so they had this huge feast. And most likely, it's, this feast is held in another friend's home, which is Simon the leper. And Jesus had healed, most likely, Simon the leper, too. And so they have this huge feast, and Martha does what Martha does best, and she expresses her love and devotion by kindly serving as hostess. And she's so thankful for what Jesus did for her brother. Mary does what she does best then, and she expresses her her thanks and her devotion specifically for the very same reason by taking this pound of very expensive perfume and it was obtained from an herb from the Himalayas. It was worth a whole lot of money, 300 denarii, Judas says, which would be a year's wages for a common laborer, not counting Sabbaths. And she pours this perfume all over the head of Jesus. It goes down his robes, goes down to his feet. It fills the room and the whole house with this fragrance. And she even lets her hair down, which was somewhat scandalous, really, in mixed company in that time. And she wipes his feet with her hair, all of which is symbolic, really, of her heart devotion to him, this utter humility and deep gratitude. In that culture, washing someone's feet was the task that only the most inferior, the lowliest slave would ever be asked to do, and yet she voluntarily does it in front of everybody and with perfume. And really all that magnifies Jesus's incredible humility in that he washed, just six days, he's gonna wash his own disciples' feet, symbol of what he's about to do for them, which really just underscores how incredible descent is the cross of Christ. So Mary shows what should be our heart towards Jesus, right at the beginning of Holy Week. Yet her anointing is full of irony. You see, perfumes like that were usually, were used on festive occasions, celebratory occasions. That's how she intends it. I mean, unbridled joy and thankfulness is the attitude she has for what Jesus has done. And yet Jesus looks at her and says, you've anointed me for my burial. Jesus knows exactly what he's getting into. So our text says the next day, which is the first day of the week, our Sunday, this huge crowd gathers, most like in the morning right there at Bethany, 
See, word has spread and everybody knows it. Like they've seen Jesus, they've heard Jesus is there. So these caravans heading to Jerusalem would pass through Bethany and they just stop, camp out, wait for him. And all these people that are already in Jerusalem hear about it and they return those two miles. So you have this huge multitude of people expectant, rejoicing, excited. I mean, Jesus who raised Lazarus from the dead is approaching at Passover time. I mean, he has to be the Messiah. He's going to deliver us. And so there's a ton of irony here too, all over the account. You may have seen those images of Russian soldiers pulling into one of the Eastern Ukrainian cities and they were expecting the people just to celebrate them as they pulled in. But instead of them being glad for their approach, the people greet them with these somber faces waving Ukrainian flags. They didn't get the reception they were expecting. Yet in Jesus' case, the irony is they wildly and enthusiastically receive him into Jerusalem, but they welcome him thinking he's a different kind of king. One whose mission is to rescue them from Rome's oppression, restore them to their privilege and prestige, who's gonna do for them what they want. And so John's the only evangelist who actually says the crowds take branches of palm trees. And God originally instituted this use for the Feast of Tabernacles. And the Feast of Tabernacles, they'd wave these palm branches uh, to rejoice before the Lord. And so that feast, the Feast of Tabernacles, symbolized you know, God's liberation at the Exodus and, and caring for them throughout their wilderness wanderings. That they, he, he took care of them, and so they'd celebrate. So palm branches, therefore, signified joy, and they signified freedom from tyranny and victory. And somewhere along the line, the Jews started using them also for the Feast of Passover. And so Passover especially celebrated God's, you know, I mean, defeat of Pharaoh and liberation from the slavery of his people, redemption from Exodus, all of that. And so by Jesus' time, Passover was the high point of Israelite messianic fervor and hatred of Roman rule. That's what's on their minds and we can't blame them. And so again, this ecstatic crowd is waving palm branches for Jesus and they cry out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And so the crowds quote Psalm 118, where the priests welcome the victorious king back to Jerusalem. They shout Hosanna as he approaches and it means give salvation now or save I pray. And so the king would approach Jerusalem in the Lord's name, having won the victory for the people. And the crowds even specify this even more when they add to that quote, even the king of Israel. They're looking at Jesus and saying, there's no ambiguity here. You are the Messiah, you are the king of Israel, you are going to rescue us. And so amid this just tumultuous celebration, Jesus both affirms them and also corrects them. Both of that is going on, affirmation and correct them, correction. And he does so through this intentional symbolic action. It's, a, it's an enacted parable. It's a word picture for the people. Everybody can understand what he's doing. He, he, in the face of their hosannas, 
he finds a donkey and he sits on it to ride into Jerusalem. Right there, you're calling me a king. And he goes and gets a donkey and he sits on it to ride into Jerusalem. Pilgrims walked into Jerusalem. That's just what you did. You were a pilgrim. You walked in. It were kings that rode into Jerusalem. Especially when people have been telling you you're a king and then you do that. It's an extremely volatile act. It's electric. And it's sure to provoke the Jewish leadership. And Jesus charts at this point a collision course with those in power. They've got to decide for or against him. He's pushing them to make a decision. In this sense, therefore, he affirms the crowd. I am a king. I'm riding into Jerusalem. At the same point, he corrects the crowd. So in your text, it says, and Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. That's really adversative. It should be, but Jesus finds a young donkey and sits on it. The point is, he's correcting the crowd's concept of him. He doesn't select a war horse. Intentionally, he selects a donkey. He's fulfilling an old prophecy that would dictate what kind of king he is and what kind of mission he's about. And it's going to be distinct. He's the king of Zechariah 9.9, and that's the quote. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. And what verse 10 of that passage says, it explains why he sits on a donkey's colt. And it says, because God's gonna take the weapons away from Israel. And instead of weapons, he's gonna make peace for the nations. He's on a donkey because he's a king of peace and humility, creating peace for the nations. And that is not what the crowds want to hear. It's not what they want to hear. They're not what the, they want the mission of their Messiah to be about. They want vengeance, not peace. Too much has happened. So Jesus is looking at them and saying, look, my mission, I have a harder assignment than you understand, and I have a bigger agenda than you realize. It's a harder assignment, and it's a bigger agenda. See, first, it's a harder assignment, because not just on a collision course with those in power, he's really on a collision course with the sinful human heart. And that's what he's dealing with. And it's worse than the Romans. It's worse than the oppression they've gone through. I'm not on a collision course with power. I'm on a collision course with your heart. And that's where the battle is waged. You don't realize that, but that's the case. So this last week, we shouldn't be surprised that all kinds of deep sin erupt. And the depths of human nature is exposed. It's like Jesus kicks a hornet's nest and they just fly out and they reject Jesus with all this vehemence and anger and bitterness because he doesn't satisfy their expectations. What Jesus does makes the cross inevitable. At the Lenten luncheon a couple of weeks ago at First United Methodist, Pastor Jackson reflected on that Negro spiritual, were you there? You know those phrase, were you there when they crucified my Lord? And were you there when they nailed him to a tree? Were you there when they pierced him in the side? Were you there when the sun refused to shine? Were you there when they laid him in a tomb? We all love that song, and the way I've always viewed it by those questions is to 
lead me to slow down and just appreciate the gravity of everything that happened and all he endured. And I think that's true. Pastor Jackson moved us a different direction. He said, what the song wants to lead us into is to recognize that you were there and you took part in it. That it's our sin that we crucified, that we nailed him because of our sinful hearts. It's like that song we sing regularly, how deep the Father's love for us. Behold the man upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice, my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished, but I mocked. Like I, I wanted him there. When I see the crowds want him there, I see my own heart exposed. And so the same crowd to glorify Jesus now with this unbelievable shout, Hosanna, the King of Israel, in just a few days in this venomous anger is gonna yell, crucify him, crucify him. And they're murderously angry. They don't just want to reject him and turn away. They want him to suffer excruciating pain and they want to erase his name from memory and make it a byword and they're murderously angry because they feel defrauded because they placed his hopes on him and he's not coming through in the way they wanted him to come through. They wanted a different kind of Messiah and they hinged their hopes on him and now he's not it and they are angry and the crowds really manifest our own entrenched self-centeredness. I mean, it's deep, it's deep. You have to meet my needs the way I want to, is what sinful heart says. You have to settle the score the way I think it needs to be settled. They unveil how we think it's all about me, how we want God's gifts, but we really don't want God for who God is. They turn on a dime because Jesus doesn't meet their expectations. I read a post from a pastor this past week that said these words, it says, in all my years of pastoring, I have learned this lesson. All right, what's the lesson? A person's spiritual maturity is not truly visible until they don't get their way. And then you see the person. Now look at that quote, I go, that's exactly right. I see it in my own self. We're all nice until what if we don't get our way? And then all of this erupts. It's down there and we see it in the crowds laid bare before us. But what about the leadership? It's even worse. And so you could walk through all of this looking at the leadership, the chief priests and the Pharisees. You know, they meet together around this time saying, wait a second, we gotta deal with him or Rome's gonna take our place and nation. It's an idolatry of security and safety that comes out. Or the chief priests, when Jesus overturns the money changing tables, they're so irate at him because he's destabilizing their system of wealth. We see the idol of money or the Pharisees when Jesus gets a little more direct and starts pinpointing their hypocritical performance righteousness and they can't tolerate that. You're challenging my own righteousness and we see that idolatry come out or the Sadducees confronting him because they've compromised with the world and they've made peace with Rome to have power. You're gonna take my power away. All of this comes out. 
And we see Jesus' assignment is harder than we ever realized. All these deep sin patterns are what inflames everyone against Jesus. Jesus collides with our selfish desire, our self-righteousness, our power, our greed, our pride, such that it's just too much for us. And we clamor, crucify him, crucify him. But God used that inevitability, God revealing his nature to sinners and suffering the unavoidable result in order to achieve something beyond our imagining. That in all that, the goal of creation itself would be accomplished and you and I would be redeemed. Our sin crucified Jesus, and yet it's even more than that. Really, the Father was there when they crucified our Lord and when they nailed him to the tree. In fact, it was really the Father doing it. You see, the Father sends the beloved Son, light of light, into our world of darkness in order the Father would make the Son our pride and our greed and our over-desire and our self-righteousness and our power. He would make him our sin. He becomes our sin. So the Father has him on the cross, and it's not what man does, it's primary. It's the Father unloading judgment on the Son because the Son wanted the Father to do that for the joy set before him, amazingly. And the Father takes our sin and makes it his own beloved Son in order that he might send hell judgment upon him at the tree such that the son would satisfy all of our punishment for us. That's his harder assignment and then declare before his death, it's finished. There's nothing more outstanding. Nothing more outstanding. And then along with that, therefore, it leads to second, the bigger agenda of the son. The bigger agenda because late in life, the Apostle Paul, Apostle John, would, suffering on the Isle of Patmos, would be given a vision of the whole goal of Jesus' work. Revelation 7, glorious passage. To think that Jesus had that passage on his mind. He was looking downfield at what I'm about to accomplish. It's gonna be brutal right now, but that's what I want. The bigger agenda, I didn't come to protect my people from a temporary problem or danger. I came to redeem a great number for eternity. He, he came to fulfill the promises to Abraham that there would be a countless number of people saved from the tyranny of hell, death, and sin unto eternity like the stars in the sky and so when the Pharisees lament at the triumphal entry, the whole world has gone after him. That's exactly right. That's what he wants to happen. And so we see that fulfilled in Revelation 7. The uncountable multitude from every nation, tribe, people, language surrounding the throne of the Lamb clothed in white with palm branches in their hands. And this is the only other text in the whole New Testament that actually says they're holding palm branches. And the bigger agenda of Jesus as he enters the triumphal entry is I'm going for this. It's a wonderful irony that his agenda was bigger. In the triumphal entry, the crowds express their joy and freedom from tyranny and victory when they think it's about 
their agenda, a temporary agenda, and yet after Jesus' cross and resurrection, God assures John of a vast multitude of people who express their joy and freedom from tyranny and victory in the ultimate sense. We all long for. This is the church throughout the centuries, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, now viewed in glory, surrounding the throne of God and the Lamb and celebrating with joy their freedom from the tyranny of their sin, the world and the devil, and rejoicing in their victory of living in the new heavens and the new earth. And that's what he's about. Opening up the new world for us. And this is Jesus' agenda as he enters Jerusalem. Everything he's going through this week, it's an agenda much bigger and better than we could have comprehended. And that's the joy set before him, even at the cross. And the multitude, redeemed by his blood, cries out with an even better song than the triumphal entry song when they say, salvation belongs to our God and to the throne and to the Lamb. So we ask, what's our song today? Do we have that song, Salvation Belongs to God Who Sits on the Throne and to the Lamb? Is that your song today? Do you recognize Jesus' bigger agenda for your life today? What needs to be our attitude as we approach Holy Week? I think Mary's already set the stage for us. This is utter humility that such a God, utter devotion to such a saving God Deep gratitude, that's our disposition as we approach this week. The idea that I, it doesn't matter the cost, I'll lay it all at your feet, like my desires that I want, I lay them at your feet. My power, my money, my prestige, my righteousness, it's at your feet because I want you. There's no one that compares with you. That's Mary's heart as we enter into this week and that's really what our heart is to be as we enter in this amazing week. None of them can save us, but we have a God who in Christ has sunk into the depths and will redeem us from our sins and bring us into that, that picture of revelation. May it lift up your hearts as you walk through this week. Amen.